Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast summarizing the September 2019 issue of the journal. You can find and subscribe to this podcast by searching for Heart Rhythm Podcast on iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please know that there is no space between heart and rhythm. In addition, translations of this podcast in seven other languages are available each month at heartrhythmjournal.com website. This issue of the journal focuses on atrial fibrillation. The first article is Risk Factors and Localization of Silent Cerebral Embarkation in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation by Miki et al. from Tohoku University, Japan. The authors enrolled 286 consecutive neurologically asymptomatic patients who underwent atrial fibrillation ablation. All patients underwent MRI before ablation. The authors found that among AF patients, frequently there are silent cerebral embarkations localized in the cerebral cortex and the cerebellum. They report that the CHAS2-DS2 VASC score could be useful for screening of silent cerebral infarction. The left atrial abnormality is the most specific marker for cardiogenic silent cerebral infarction. These findings provide useful information for risk stratification. Next up is a paper by Bush et al. from University of Medicine, Greifswald, Germany. The paper is titled, Relation of IGF-1 and IGF-BP3 with Prevalent and Incident Atrial Fibrillation in a Population-Based Study. Insulin-like growth factor 1, or IGF-1, and its main binding protein, IGF-BP3, have been related to several cardiovascular diseases. The authors collected data from 3,000 patients in the study of health in Pomerania including 66 with atrial fibrillation at baseline. They found that IGF-1 and IGF-1 slash IGF-BP3 ratios were significantly lower in individuals with atrial fibrillation than in those without atrial fibrillation. IGF-1 is known to regulate proliferation, differentiation, metabolism, and the cell survival in various tissues. It has also been linked to a number of metabolic diseases, including hypertension, obesity, and a stroke. This is the first study that showed low IGF-1 is linked to atrial fibrillation. Fassini et al. from Milan, Italy, wrote the following article titled Cryo-Balloon Pulmonary Vein Ablation and Left Atrial Appendage Closure Combined Procedure, a long-term follow-up analysis. The study included 49 patients followed for two years. Overall, freedom from atrial arrhythmia was 60%, and 92% of patients were off antithrombotic drugs. They observed the annualized stroke and the bleeding rate were 1% and 2% respectively. This long-term follow-up study shows that concomitant cryo-balloon ablation and the left atrial appendage closure procedures appear to be safe and effective. In spite of a high antithrombotic drug withdrawal rates, the stroke rate is low. 
Next up is the 10-year ablation outcome. So patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation receiving pulmonary vein isolation by Chiang et al. from Veterans General Hospital, Taipei, Taiwan. This study retrospectively enrolled 176 patients with drug refractory symptomatic paroxysmal atrial fibrillation who underwent electroanatomical guided PVI after a mean follow-up period of 130 months. Sinus rhythm was achieved in 58% of patients after a single procedure and in 88% of patients after multiple procedures. Patients with enlarged left atriums tend to have more recurrences of atrial tachyarrhythmias. In this study, the outcomes of segmental and the circumferential PVI were the same. A limitation of the study is that the recurrence of arrhythmia was determined by clinical follow-up or interview, which may miss some arrhythmia episodes. The next paper is five-year outcomes in cardiac surgery patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing concomitant surgical ablation versus no ablation. The authors are Osmanic et al. from Charles University, Prague. The data came from the Prague 12 study, which was a prospective randomized clinical trial assessing cardiac surgery with ablation for atrial fibrillation versus cardiac surgery alone. The study included a total of 207 patients. The authors found that concomitant surgical ablation of atrial fibrillation is associated with a greater likelihood of maintaining sinus rhythm and a decreased risk of stroke than patients who had a surgery alone. This study supports the concomitant surgical ablation of atrial fibrillation during open-heart surgery. Blackos et al. from University of Bordeaux, France, wrote the following article titled The Role of Marshall Bundle Epicardial Connections in Atrial Tachycardias After Atrial Fibrillation Ablation. The authors mapped 199 episodes of post-ablation atrial tachycardia and found that the Marshall Bundle Network participated in 30% of re-entrant atrial tachycardias. Among them, 80% were terminated by RF ablation and 15% by ethanol injection into the vein of Marshall. These findings show that the ablation of the Marshall bundle by radiofrequency or ethanol may be required for arrhythmia termination. These findings make the vein of Marshall an attractive target for AF ablation. The next paper is rate and the rhythm therapy in patients with atrial fibrillation and the risk of pacing and bradyarrhythmia by Dalgar et al. from Hellerup, Denmark. Among 135,000 AF patients, 9,000 or 7% experienced the composite endpoint of pacemaker implantation, temporary pacing, and bradyarrhythmia hospitalization during a median follow-up of 3.7 years. The authors found that the rate-lowering dual therapy, antiarrhythmic monotherapy, or combined therapy were positively associated with bradyarrhythmia-related events. The risk was highest in the amiodarone-treated groups. During the initial two weeks of treatment, in women and in the elderly, Bradycardia complications can occur at significant frequencies during both rate control and the rhythm control strategies 
for atrial fibrillation. Next up is voltage during atrial fibrillation is superior to voltage during sinus rhythm in localizing areas of delayed enhancement on magnetic resonance imaging by Qureshi et al. from Hammersmith Hospital, London. The authors studied 14 patients with voltage mapping during atrial fibrillation and during sinus rhythm and compared the results with delayed enhancement MRI. They found that the correlation between low voltage and the posterior LA delayed enhancement MRI is significantly improved when acquired during atrial fibrillation versus sinus rhythm. With adequate sampling, mean atrial fibrillation voltage is a reasonable marker reflecting the functional response to the underlying persistent atrial fibrillation substrate. These important preliminary results will need validation in a large patient cohort. The next article is titled Antiarrhythmic Drug Therapy and All-Cause Mortality After Caster Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation, a Propensity-Matched Analysis. The paper was written by Shantha et al. from University of Michigan. The authors studied 3,600 consecutive patients with atrial fibrillation. Among them, 62% received antiarrhythmic drug therapy after caster ablation. They followed the patients for 6.7 years on multivariate analysis, although the risk of death was not statistically significant between the drug and no-drug cohorts. There was a trend towards mortality benefit with drug therapy regardless of the patient's rhythm or anticoagulation status. The authors conclude that antiarrhythmic drug use after castor ablation of atrial fibrillation is not associated with an increased risk of mortality and in fact may be associated with reduced mortality after atrial fibrillation ablation. Next up is ibrutinib promotes atrial fibrillation by inducing structural remodeling and calcium dysregulation in the atrium. Ibrutinib is a novel anti-tumor drug used in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is associated with increased incidence of atrial fibrillation. The authors developed a mouse model of ibrutinib-induced atrial fibrillation and investigated its proarrhythmic mechanisms. In this model, there is increased left atrial mass, significant myocardial fibrosis, calcium handling disorders in atrial myocytes, enhanced delayed after depolarization in atrial myocytes, increased KM kinase 2 expression and increased phosphorylation around in receptor type 2 and phospholamban. These data indicate that the arrhythmogenic mechanisms underlying this model are likely associated with structural remodeling and calcium handling disorders in the atrium. This basic science study helps to understand the mechanism by which ibrutinib induces atrial fibrillation and it suggests that chemokinase 2 inhibition may be a potentially useful therapeutic strategy. Yuan et al. from my laboratory in Indianapolis wrote the following article titled Subcutaneous Nerve Stimulation for Rate Control in Ambulatory Dogs with Persistent Atrial Fibrillation. We previously showed that subcutaneous nerve stimulation damages the stellate ganglion and reduces sympathetic output. 
This method may be useful in controlling the ventricular rate during atrial fibrillation. To test this hypothesis, we prospectively randomized 13 dogs with atrial fibrillation into subcutaneous stimulation and sham stimulation groups. We found that subcutaneous stimulation reduces the ventricular rate and preserves the left ventricular ejection fraction, while the sham control group had reduced ejection fraction and no change of ventricular rate. PET MRI of the dog's brain showed the enhanced brainstem glucose uptake activity. Because skin is easily accessible, this method may prove useful in the rate control of atrial fibrillation. The next article is a review written by El Batran et al. from St. George's University of London, titled The Rationale for Isolation of the Left Atrial Pulmonary Venous Component to Control Atrial Fibrillation, a review article. The authors reviewed the embryological origin of the pulmonary vein and the left atrium. They also provided a critical assessment of the anatomical features important to AF ablation. A final article of this AF focus issue is a review titled Systematic Review of Biological Therapies for Atrial Fibrillation by McRae et al. from University of Ottawa Heart Institute. Biological therapies that increase or suppress the expression of transcripts underlying atrial fibrillation progression increasingly are being explored to create novel treatment paradigms beyond simply suppressing or destroying tissue. The authors review the preclinical data that support these new biological therapies for atrial fibrillation. Following these AF-related papers is an article titled Cardiac Sympathectomy for Refractory Ventricular Arrhythmias in Cardiac Sarcoidosis by Okada et al. from Johns Hopkins University. The authors report a case series of five patients with cardiac sarcoidosis and ventricular arrhythmias. The median number of ICD shocks in the six months before surgery was five, which was reduced to zero following cardiac sympathectomy. Repeat castor ablation was required in one patient. An additional patient required cardiac transplantation for progressive heart failure. The authors conclude that cardiac sympathetic denervation may be a feasible therapeutic adjunct for patients with cardiac sarcoidosis and refractory ventricular arrhythmias. However, not all patients are responsive to this approach. The next article is comparison of the arrhythmogenic substrate between men and women with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, written by Ku from Taipei Veterans General Hospital, Taiwan, and the University of Pennsylvania. The authors analyzed 160 consecutive patients, including 59 who underwent cardiac magnetic resonance imaging before the ablation procedure. The authors found that the scar percentage Transmorality and distribution were similar between women and men with non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy. While fewer VTs were induced in women than in men, ablation results were similar. The limitation of the study is that only a minority of patients underwent MRI examinations. Bricciano et al. from University of Pennsylvania wrote the following article titled Clinical and Electrophysiological Characteristics of idiopathic ventricular arrhythmias originating from the slow pathway region. 
of 63 patients with parahitian region idiopathic ventricular arrhythmias undergoing ablation, the slow pathway region was targeted in 12. All patients presented with PVC manifesting left bundle branch morphology. Ablation was successful in 11 of the 12 patients. One patient required a permanent pacemaker for heart block, but subsequently recovered intrinsic conduction. This study showed that the slow pathway region can be a source of idiopathic ventricular arrhythmias, which can be safely and successfully ablated in most cases using RF energy. The arrhythmias arising from the slow pathway region manifest unique ECG features. Preoperative recognition of these ECG patterns may be helpful for planning the ablation procedure. Next up is algorithm-based reduction of inappropriate defibrillator shock. Results of the inappropriate shock reduction with parat plus rhythm discrimination implantable cardioverter defibrillator study by Ruiz Granel et al. from Valencia, Spain. The parat plus algorithm is a proprietary algorithm designed to discriminate super, uh, supraventricular from ventricular arrhythmias. They enrolled a thousand patients and followed them for 500 days. They found that the annual rate of inappropriate shocks using the enhanced Parat Plus discrimination algorithm alone ranged from 1 to 2.1 per 100 person years in a general population implanted for primary or secondary prevention. A limitation of the study is the absence of a matched control group but the low inappropriate shock rate is encouraging. Creole et al. from Mayo Clinic wrote the following article titled Patterns of Amiodarone-Induced Thyroid Dysfunction in Infants and Children. The authors studied a retrospective cohort of pediatric patients who received amiodarone. Of the children who had the thyroid function tested, half developed a TSH value above the reference for age. Neonates and the highest median peak TSH values. The authors conclude that neonates and infants receiving amiodarone had more thyroid dysfunction with greater degrees of TSH elevation than older children. TSH elevations occurred early, even with short-term exposure to amiodarone. Given the concern for brain development and growth in hypothyroid children, these results suggest the need for more rigorous pediatric-specific thyroid monitoring guidelines. This month's HRS 40th anniversary viewpoint was written by Dr. Nora Goldschlager, titled Cape Diem. She described her career and her association with the Heart Rhythm Society. She noted increased participation of women in the society leadership and the EP laboratories. In addition to the print pages, the journal also have published several documents electro electronically. The first one is a digital health document titled Transparent Sharing of Digital Health Data, a Call to Action by Slotweiner et al. A second is the HR's white paper on interoperability of data from cardiovascular implantable electronic devices, or CIEDs. The third one is the 2018 ACC AHA-HRS guideline on the evaluation and the management of patients with bradycardia and cardiac conduction delay.
I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Hot Rhythm, I'm editor in chief, Dr. Pen Xian Chen.